Well, good morning, TBC Familia. Yeah. It really is uh, amazing to hear what the Lord is doing throughout our campuses at Wheaton Bible Church, right? Now, my name is Eric Solomon. If you don't already know me, I am uh, the campus pastor of Tri-Village Church. We're one, camp, one church in multiple locations, a campus of Wheaton Bible Church. Um, and what happened just yesterday, it's, it's one of the beauties of being one church in multiple locations. We can celebrate what the Lord has done in the western suburbs through CareFest. Now, before we jump into the Bible, I do want to give you a quick update. Um, if you are receiving our e-news, then you saw a number of updates in this week's edition. If you're not, you can sign up on our website. But the most surprising of those updates was probably our announcement that we're saying goodbye to our worship pastor, Robbie, and his wife, Tia. They're not here this morning yet, uh, but they're moving out of state. They're stepping into a new season. And because of all that happened last weekend, we weren't able to say goodbye to them then. But we plan on honoring them at a service later this month. I just want you to know that that is happening. And if you do know them and I have connected with them, I would highly encourage you to, to give them a call, shoot them a text, let them know how the Lord has used them in your life. Um, I think they would really greatly appreciate that. I also want to remind you uh, of something that just like we did with our West Chicago and Iglesia de Pueblo campuses yesterday, we're going to have a chance to do some CareFest projects right here in the Tri-Village area coming up on November 7th. Um, but there is a project, the CareFest project, that you can be involved with right now. Right, some of you may remember that one of our favorite Tri-Village CareFest projects is with the residents of the Bella Terra, Terra Nursing Home in Streamwood. Now, I wasn't here when we did this, but I heard that this past Easter, we actually adopted the second floor residents and wrote them letters, brought them gifts. Uh, we wanted them to know that they are loved by, by the community of Christ here in Streamwood. Because of COVID, though, visits right now are, are limited, but we can still love and serve them. We're actually preparing another round of letters to send to them. Uh, and if you want more information, if you have questions or you want to get connected, Christy Cole will actually be outside under the welcome tent to answer any questions in person. Or you can just go right on the website to trivillagechurch.org backslash nursing home. Now, with CareFest and this video and talking about nursing home and serving our community, I want to also thank you for being a partner in ministry here. We wouldn't be able to love and serve our community without your participation with your time, with your skills, and, and even with your financial resources. And so even as we talk about every week, I, I want to remind you, I, I want you to ask you to take a moment to prayerfully consider giving, setting up a recurring gift to enable the kingdom work that we do through our, our, our church and all of our campuses. Now you can do that in a variety of different ways. There's an offering box in the back. We're not passing the plate, again, to minimize cross-contact. But you can also do it online on our website, trivillagechurch.org, or you can text trivillage to 77977. Now before we jump into the word, I do want to pray for our time again, uh, if that's okay with you guys. We can never have enough prayer, amen? Amen. Let's pray really quick that the Lord might continue to be generous with us. Father, we continue our worship this morning, gathering before your throne in prayer. We have sung your praises, we've been reminded of your work through your people, and we pray that as we open up your word, we would be humble before you. Pray that you would speak to us now by your spirit through your word. Remind us of this revolutionary reality called the church that you have brought everyone who believes in Jesus into. Challenge us where we have believed or said the wrong things about your church. Encourage and empower us to continue to be your people in this world for your glory and the good of others. And Lord, I ask you that my words in this moment would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In your son's name that we pray. Amen. 
Well, as it is every week, it is a privilege and a joy to open up the Bible together with you. Like Sergio said, we're starting a new series called Invincible Church. Um, Last week, we were ending our series in Philippians, but because we couldn't meet, um, we weren't actually able to get into Philippians 4. But this series comes right out of that understanding of true community. So we thought it best to just step right in and and re-examine, relearn, maybe for the first time, or or like I said, relearn what it is that the church uh, does in the world why the church is so important, what is this mission of the church, to remember that God works in and through his church, that all the things that we do here on a Sunday morning and throughout the week as a church have a reason, a purpose, and that the church, at the end of the day, is unstoppable, is invincible because of the God of the church. Amen? So for the next few months, we're going to be diving headfirst into what the Bible has to say about his people and his plans in the world through his people. And this morning, we're going to begin our series in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you have your phones, if you can just look up like 90 degrees at the screen, we're going to have the text of Matthew up there. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is God's word. You may be seated. In the early 1970s, there was an airport in Virginia that was sold and repurposed into a plaza where people could work, they could shop, they could even live. There were apartment buildings on the complex. But in the spring of 1973, months before it was set to open, tragedy struck. And one of the eight apartment buildings collapsed. An investigation after the fact found that the problem was not in the design of the apartment building itself, but in the implementation of that design. The forms that were supporting the concrete columns on the 22nd floor were removed too quickly. Perhaps in an effort to finish the building on time, the workers didn't really wait for the cement to harden completely. We don't really know, but what we do know is that the columns could not support the weight of the floor above it. The pressure mounted, the floors buckled, and the building collapsed. The problem was a problem of supports. The problem was not how the building was designed, but how the design was implemented. Not how the concrete columns were built or poured, but removing their support too early. Tragedy stuck not because the concept that they had in mind for these buildings was too big or too crazy of a design, but because it did not have the right support. 
And as we begin this series re-examining what the church is, what the Bible has to say about what the church is, I want to make sure that we have the right supports in place. That we look at what God says about his invincible church with the right support. So what are the right supports you might ask? Well, this morning, I want to suggest to you four supports that the Lord gives us in his word. That Matthew 16, 13 through 20 bring up. These four vital supports that we have to have in place. And they are, as you'll see on the screen, the timeline of God's people, the portrait of God's son, the blueprint of God's church, and the hope of God's gospel. Timeline, portrait, blueprint, hope. And all of these supports are in place in this passage in particular to remind us of one thing. This main idea, if you forget everything else I said this morning, I want you to remember this main idea on this next slide. That a a Jesus-built church is our only hope. The Jesus-built church is our only hope. So, let's look at the first support. What I'm trying to convince you that the Jesus-built church is our only hope, let's look at the first support that we have to have in place. And let's start at the beginning. Because in one sense, in a very important sense, the church didn't actually begin in the New Testament. The word for church in the Bible is a word that means gathering. And when we use the word church, we mean not just any gathering, but a gathering of God's people. And sometimes I hear people say, we need to go back, we need to be a New Testament church. And I understand what that means in part. But in a really significant sense, the church in the New Testament has a history that started all the way back in time at the moment of creation, when God first gathered his people. So in the beginning of the timeline, in Genesis 1 through 2, God actually creates humanity, right? He creates people, plural, not just a person. He creates two humans with the ability and even the command to multiply. He creates a multiplying people. Now, if you know the story, in the next chapter... Something bad happens, something terrible, something that reverberates throughout history. These people, through their disobedience and their sin, brought death and destruction into the world. So pause and uh, fast forward like you're trying to return or like you're trying to get through a blockbuster movie. No one remembers that, 90s kid. Fast forward a couple chapters into Genesis 12, where God again picks a person, Abram. You're like, Eric, he picked two people at the beginning, now he's picking one. Abram was picked to be the first, the first of God's people. Out of all the people on the earth, Abram, or known as Abraham, the father of many nations, was picked to be an entry point for the people of God. And again, God is gathering his people. And I want you to note here that Abraham is not chosen because he's special. He's special because he's chosen. Again, Abraham is not chosen because he's special. He's special because he's chosen. God is making a people for himself, and he starts all the way back in creation and continues through Abraham to be an entry point for God to continue to gather his people to himself. So I'm going to continue going through the timeline. I'm going to go 30,000-foot view. I'm going to be pretty quick. I'm going to try to slow down the Latino tongue so we can actually understand what I'm saying. The story gets into the next chapter in Exodus. If you've read the story of Exodus, you know that God's people get into trouble big time right? Egyptian enslavement, abuse, oppression, and it's not until centuries later, but it does happen, that God frees his people. He brings justice for the oppressed, and the people that began with Adam and Eve, 
that continue through Abraham are now being led by a man named Moses to a mountain where God gives instructions to his people about what it means to be his people. He begins to form and shape his people to live life as it was meant to be lived. The story keeps going. I'm not going to go through every single book of the Bible, but there's a lot of ups and downs if you've read through your reading plan, right? You get to the book of Judges and the condemnation that's stamped on the book pretty heavily is that in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The people that God had been forming from Moses all the way through that had been formed by the true king acted as if they had no king. They did their own thing. And even when God gave them a king, if you know the history, They kept running away from him. They kept running away from their king. And yet, and this is what is key in this moment, they were still the people of God. God continued to be gracious, continued to be merciful, and continued to be present over and over again. God is gathering a people for himself. And even when it seems like the next scene is going to have God rage quitting and and, and burning it all to the ground, he doesn't. He is patient, he is gracious, he is merciful. He is all the way through, continuing to gather and shape a people for himself. The rest of the Old Testament is filled with songs and prophecies where God does uh, condemn his people, judge his people, execute justice on his people, but never as a way to say, I'm out, but to say, come back. Repent, turn and come back to me. And then the story goes silent for 400 years. And then we open up our Bible to Matthew 1, where God once again speaks. And the danger that we have here is we forget that the timeline of the people of God is the timeline of God's church. It's not like at Matthew 1, God started the plan over again. The New Testament is not the beginning of the story. It is the continuation. The Old Testament is not the foreword or the preface to the really interesting stuff In the last third of your Bible, in a really important sense, the gathering of God's people didn't start in Acts, but in Genesis. But we do have to acknowledge that when we hit the New Testament, there's something pretty different happening, right? It's not one-for-one identification. There is continuity with the people of God. The people of God were created in the Old Testament, but it is better said that in the New Testament, they were recreated. And here's why this support is so important. This is why I'm starting here. Because as we talk about the church, and I, and I really, I want you to listen to me this. I, I know this is history, and I'm walking through different books of the Bible, but here's why I want to set this as our first support. Because as the people of God on this side of the cross, we have this tendency that is understandable, but is dangerous, to forget where we came from. To give up two-thirds of our Bible. To relinquish our heritage. We think it's irrelevant to us. What can the Old Testament say to me? And it has devastating effects to a church that's birthed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And as Dr. Maya Angelou talks about the black experience in America, the same thing applies here. How can you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been? This entire book is the Word of God. God's character, His mercy, His love, His tenderness, His compassion, His holiness, His justice, everything that He is and says is wrapped around every word on every page of this book. And so if we're going to be part of this invincible church, if we're going to re-examine what what God in his word says about the church, if we're going to understand who God has made us to be, we have to, have to, have to 
see all how God has shaped the picture of himself and his people from the very beginning. This is our first support. You see, if we're going to be named among God's invincible church, we must remember that we are named among God's invincible gathering of believers from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. We've got to see ourselves within the timeline of God's people. That's our first support. But now I want to go to our second one, where we actually enter that timeline in Matthew 16, in a place called Caesarea Philippi, and we look at the portrait of the Son of God, the portrait of God's Son. Look at verse 13 with me. As Jesus enters Caesarea Philippi, he stops and he looks at his disciples and he asks them a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's a pretty curious question. And it's curious because if you know the context of Matthew, this is actually the 10th time that Jesus has used the title Son of Man. And every time he uses it, it's pretty clear that he's referring to himself. So when he asks the question, as is, if you read through the Gospels, it's pretty typical of Jesus. It's, it's a leading question, right? What is also curious is that it seems that Jesus is crowdsourcing his answer, right? He asks them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And if you know some of our uh, famous examples in our day and age of crowdsourcing, you know that the crowd doesn't always know what's best, right? If you've read any of those stories, my favorite one is of a ferry company that was trying to build new ferries and name those ferries after they had made a bunch of changes that their customers did not appreciate. The top name of the ferries was SS Should Have Been a Bridge. Not necessarily the best and most catchy name. I'm also grateful that the Lay's Potato Chip Company didn't make the top winner of their name or their flavor competition, which was Cappuccino Potato Chips. The crowd doesn't always know what's best. It has its benefits, but they don't always know what's best. And this is why the timeline that I've already mentioned matters in this case, right? When you read the story and you hear these, these answers that the crowd has sourced of John the Baptist, of Elijah, of Jeremiah, of the prophets, you have to understand where we are in the timeline. Because then you'll understand that these answers are as disappointing as they are misguided. Now, Jesus didn't correct these answers here. If you read through the text, he doesn't stop and say, okay, here's why the Son of Man is not any of these things. He just moves right past it because in what he's about to do next, he corrects their misunderstandings. And he asks the disciples what they think. So moving from crowdsourcing, he surprises them because in the next few verses, the answer is not just an opinion that he he finds, but a revelation. Look at verses 15 through 17. Who do you say I am? Jesus makes it plain here. Not, not who, who do people say the Son of Man is, but who do you say I am? Pretty direct question, and he gets a pretty direct answer from a pretty direct person, Simon Peter. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Simon Peter acts as this uh, spokesman for all the disciples. He steps in, he speaks truth Plain and simple. And it has this like uh, reverberation throughout history, right? Because this is a big statement that he just makes. So let me break that down for you. Because that, that statement that he makes, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, has huge implications. Messiah is actually the, the Hebrew word that's translated into Greek in Christ. The, the, the word we normally think is Jesus' last name. It's not his last name. It's a title. It's used very flippantly like a cuss word, but it's actually a very powerful designation that Jesus is this long-awaited person that the people of God have been waiting for, praying for, begging for. The one that God promised would come all the way from the beginning of the story. From Genesis 3.15, where he promises that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, even as the serpent bruises his heel. 
The Messiah is the snake crusher that they're waiting for. He is the prophet greater than Moses, the king better than David, the priest better than Aaron. He is the one without beginning or end that will one day rule over all. He is the snake-crushing, life-giving king. When Peter says that, he's saying, you're the one we've been waiting for. And then when Peter calls him the son of the living God, that is equally as big because he's acknowledging and proclaiming that the God, that this son of man is is the one from whom life itself flows, the source of all life. You are the son of the living God. And and the beginning of the portrait is painted with this dazzling light, but in this next reaction, Jesus doesn't get blinded by that light, right? He looks at his response. Look at the response he says, Peter, this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. You're not super clever or insightful. You're Master of Divinity degree in seminary didn't get this for you. You didn't figure it out by all this Bible study. My father revealed it to you. This is not something Peter has generated. This is something Peter has received. This response, this answer, this proclamation comes not from earth, but from heaven. Not from creation, but from the creator. Not from humanity, but from God, the father in heaven. And I want to pause here for a second, TVC, and say, what would you say if Jesus had turned around and looked at you and said, who do you say that I am? What is your answer to that question? How are you answering that question with your life right now? Who do you say that I am? You see, many have answered this question throughout history. It's a question because of the claims that Jesus makes for himself and the Bible makes about Jesus that at some point we all have to confront right? And my, I plead with you this morning that you not avoid this question, that you don't try to slip around this question, that you let it stop you in your tracks, that you see Jesus looking you full in the face and say, who do you say that I am? Because from the answer to this question flows life from the living God. From the answer of this question flows the lifeblood of the church, Let me show you. We'll look at verse 18. This is why I can say that. Because here's the core of this passage. Here's the center point that just blows your mind as Jesus has been progressing in this conversation. Because remember what we are being reminded of this morning. That Jesus built church as our only hope. And it comes from this verse right here in verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This father's revelation to Peter about the identity of the son led Jesus not only to commend Peter, say, hey, blessed because of what you received, but he starts to proclaim his plan for the world, the church. And this is the first of only two times in Matthew that the word church is even used. The only time it's used in any of the Gospels. And the beginning of the hundreds of times it will be used from Acts to Revelation. God's plan for the world is the church. God's plan has always been and will continue to be a a people for himself, a gathering that is built on solid ground on the rock. So you might look at this passage and go, okay, Eric, then what is the rock? If you've been involved in church at all, you understand that this passage is something that has a lot of different answers from different people. There are certain religious groups that will see in this verse a, a justification for Simon Peter to be the foundation of the church. They say that because this name Peter that is actually a nickname that Jesus gave Simon, that means rock, 
When Jesus says this rock, they believe he must mean Peter himself, and it begins a, a line of, of leadership for the head of the church. But as Protestants, which is what we are as a church body, we believe that this understanding of Scripture is actually goes above and beyond the teaching of Scripture in this passage. You see, the focus in this passage is not on Peter. I'll, I'll, I'll prove it to you. The focus in this passage is on what has been revealed to Peter, on what the community of the Messiah, what the church is to be built upon. This isn't the first uh, uh, senior pastor succession plan, right? This, Jesus is talking about God's purposes in the world through what Peter has just said. And here's why I can say that, because it's actually more than what Peter himself understands. This is why, as you read your Bible, context is king. As you read your Bible and devotionals, you have to look at the context of a passage. You can't just pull a passage out and say, this is what I need this week. You've got to look at the whole story. And so I want you to look at the context in this passage. Look at the three verses right after our passage. I don't have them up on the screen, so pull them up on your Bible. Verses 21 through 23, this is what the Bible says. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This scene, like right after the scene we're in this morning, is the complete opposite of what's just happened. Right? Instead of communicating what he's received from God, Peter rebukes the Son of God because of what he in his human mind with his human concerns and human purposes thinks is right. Even when Peter called Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he didn't fully understand what that meant. He had his own idea, like many of us do, about Jesus. Don't hear me knocking Peter. This is an us problem, not, a, not just a Peter problem. And so Jesus clarifies this idea in verses 21 through 23. He says, this, the, the Messiah is going to suffer, die, and be raised to life. That is what it means to be the Messiah. So with that context in mind, we go back to our passage. We see that it isn't just about how great Peter is, because just like us, he's not that great. But how great God is. How great God's plan in the world is. And what is that plan? That plan is the church. That plan is a church that is going to be um, built, blueprinted by Jesus. Our first support was understanding where we are in the timeline of God's people. Our second support was looking at who the Son of God actually is, this portrait. But now I want to come to our third support, the blueprint of God's church. And we're going to stay in verse 18. I said it's the core of this passage. We're staying in here because there's an, another thing I want to draw out. The blueprint of God's church begins with the reality that we are a built church. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. One of the crucial pieces of a blueprint, I'm not a construction worker, but I know construction workers and contractors. One of the crucial pieces of a blueprint is knowing who the builder actually is. And in our modern day and age, right, very often the person who designs the building is not the person who builds the building. But that's not how it is with the church. The God of the church, the Jesus who designed this life-giving community, is also the same Jesus who builds this community. And he builds it upon faith. We are a built church. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, about this passage, cautions us to remember the name of the builder 
when he writes this, and I, I could not figure a way to shorten this quote, so it's a longer quote, but I think it bears repeating here. So listen, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to remember the name of the builder. It is not we who build. Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is surely well on the way to destroying it, for he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. We must confess he builds. We must proclaim he builds. We must pray to him and he will build. We don't know his plan. We cannot see whether he is building or pulling down. It may be that the times which by human standards are times of collapse are for him the great times of construction. It may be that the times which from a human point are great times for the church are times when it's pulled down. It is a great comfort which Jesus gives to his church. You confess, preach, bear witness to me, and I alone will build where it pleases me. Do not meddle in what is not your providence. Do what is given to you and do it well, and you will have done enough. Do you believe that, TVC? Do you believe that it is Jesus who builds his church? That it is Jesus who brings hope into the world through his church, through us? Well, in order to really believe that, we have to recognize that we are not the ones who build that church. He is. And when he says he's the one who builds, you can trust that he will follow through. He is going to do it. Nothing or no one else can stop him. But we also got to recognize that Jesus is building his church in some difficult-to-understand, blow-our-minds kind of way, Jesus has chosen that the primary vehicle in which he works in the world is through his people, through his church. He has chosen that the way in which his gospel, his hope, his grace, and his mercy is communicated to all nations is through his church. And if you're tracking the timeline that we talked about at the beginning, that really shouldn't be all that surprising, Right? That has always been the plan from Abraham all the way to Paul to now. It's we humans who might stumble along the way, but it is God's faithfulness and mercy and patience that keeps moving the ball forward. It is God who does the work, but it is God who does the work through his church, through us, through me, through you, and you, and you, and you, and all of us. It is God who works through his church. This is why we do what we do, right? This is why we're gathering together in person this morning to worship. This is why we're writing letters to the Bellatura Nursing Home, why we participate in CareFest projects, not just on one day, but throughout the year. Why we worship and pray and take communion and baptize. Because God has set up his plan in such a way that he accomplishes his purpose, his purposes in the world through his people. Not despite them. Through his people not despite them. And as I've said week after week when I've been up here at TVC, we are not the ones who generate ministry. We are not the ones who make God's work work out. We are the ones through whom God's work works its way out into the world. He works in and through us. We are a built church. We remember always that he is the one who does it. He designed the plan, he built the church, and he will sustain his church. And that's why the second half of this verse is so important. We're not just a built church, we're an invincible church. Let me break that down because this passage has an, a, an image, a metaphor, poetry even. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. In the Bible, gates are typically the symbol of defense or offense, right? They, some gates were designed in these L shapes to actually keep the enemy from storming in and kind of creating a bottleneck so you can defend better. 
Ancient writers would use gates as, as the gates of a city or upon another city to symbolize strength. But Jesus is here not just talking about any gates of strength, but the gates of Hades, the underworld. Some of your translations might actually use the word hell here, which is a really good translation of what's actually happening here. But it's not hell with the focus on punishment, but hell with the focus on the place of the dead. Remember earlier how Peter confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ? He also confessed that he's the son of the living God. Not just any God, the living God. When Jesus says that the gates of Hades will not overcome the church, when, when he says that, that death will not overcome the church, he means that death will not even overcome his people. That death isn't the end for his people. That his people will, like later we read in Jude, will snatch people from the fire. That the gates of Hades will not be able to succeed against the church Death will not be able to hold his prisoners. Death will not be able to re-imprison his ex-captives who have been saved by Christ. This is an invincible church because we follow an invincible God. We snatch people from the fire. We face death with confidence in the one who beat death. We say with Paul, like we read all the way back in Philippians 1, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The gates of death will not overcome the church. What does that look like for us today, TBC? As one of the, these local outposts of the church across time and space, what does it mean for us to really believe that death will not overcome us? To live like that really matters. I can tell you this morning what it doesn't mean. Here's what my worry as I read through this passage uh, and, and, and tried to fill my own heart with it in order to fill your hearts with it. My worry is that we'll read this passage and we won't realize that in the back of our minds we have our social location. In the United States of America in a Western country, that we will read Jesus' language of war and, and think that we mean that we operate in this war by flesh and blood tactics. That is not at all what Jesus means in this passage. Again, context matters. What did he say right after this? That time on, Jesus began to explain, he has to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. This upside-down, inside-out way of the kind of church that Jesus is building, the way this church stands firm against death in defense or offense, is precisely through death. And this passage says it's so incomprehensible, it's so hard to understand that even Peter, the one who was just blessed for identifying Jesus as the Son of God, rebukes the Son of God for this foolish plan. Jesus, are you crazy? Are you nuts? Do you need a pep talk? Like, no, we're right here with you. We can do this. Peter, you don't get it. You received truth from my father just a little bit ago, and you don't even recognize that you're operating on human terms right now. And that by doing that, you are setting yourself up in opposition to God, to my father, to me, to our plan. What an invincible church lives in every single day is that the way up is down. The way to win is to lose. The way to life is through death. That is the gospel we proclaim. The way to resurrection is through suffering. This is why Jesus follows up this rebuke of Peter. And I'm way outside the bounds of our passage, but again, context matters. Look at the end of this chapter. He follows up his rebuke of Peter with a clear teaching on the way of disciples. 
that the way of disciples begins on the path to the cross. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What does that mean for us this morning, TBC? Do we believe that Jesus actually builds his church, or are we acting like it's on our shoulders? I recognize and even asking those questions that it's difficult. I know that a number of people have stepped away from our community here. I know that the people that we have loved and served with, I know the people that, like Philippians 1 says, we have contended side by side for the faith of the gospel with, have stepped away. But they have not stepped away, from my understanding, from Jesus. They are still our family. But get this right, whether those who stepped away or us who stayed, we need to understand that it is not them or us who keep the church together. It is not them or us who build the church. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who builds his church. And in this season, TVC, we have to remember that. It's hard right now. It's not easy to say goodbye. It feels like you're chopping an arm off. But Jesus is building Jesus is constructing. He has brought me here. He has brought you here. We are in this together because Jesus is building his church. Amen? Amen. Do we believe in this new season that death itself cannot overcome God's church? Do we live like we believe that? Do we believe all the way that, that, that life is through death? And, and I keep asking these questions, but, but here's how it plays out. Daily, regularly, habitually, you show that you are on the path to the cross, on the path to death all the way to life, through many deaths, through giving up of yourself, sacrificing yourself for the sake of the other. Emulating the path that gets all the way to the cross starts with giving up your preferences, your desires, just like Jesus. We read about it in Philippians 2. He left heaven he came to earth. He humbled himself to the point of a servant, obedience, even death on a cross. In the middle of this pandemic where real physical death is not only a possibility, but it's talked about, it's in our faces all the time. Do we understand what it means to live as a community that understands that the path to life is through death? I'll get to our last verse in the support. I've already gone too long and you see me pull away from my notes. This blueprint... This blueprint that God gives us here in verse 19 that Jesus gives us here is pretty important. And I, but I want to point out something that you might not have seen in this verse. So the blueprint is a built church. It's an invincible church. And it is ultimately a redefined church. Because in this verse, in verse 19, we can get so caught up in something. I'll read it. We'll, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We can get so caught up in what Peter and the disciples appear to have received, these keys to the kingdom, the power to bind and loose, which is important that we miss the context of what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is about heaven and earth. Do you see that? Don't miss this. Fast forward to the end of the story in Revelation. The hope of the story of God is not that we will someday, like the hymn says, fly away. By and by, I'll fly away. That is not the hope of the story of God. 
The hope is that just like he did in Jesus, someday God will come back to earth, that the heavenly city will come down and remake everything on earth. Heaven comes down to earth, and here Jesus is very clear to say that you don't have to wait till the end till that happens. It begins right now through his church. Among the people of God, the realities of heaven touch earth. It is the work of the people of God, the life of the people of God, the rhythms and witness of the people of God that heaven meets earth. It began in the God-man Jesus and we're following in his steps. He came from heaven to earth and it continues in his body, the church. So how does heaven meet earth in your life, Christian? How does heaven reach earth in our community here, TVC? What does it mean for us to swing wide open the gates of the kingdom of the living God, the kingdom of heaven, to everyone who proclaims Jesus as Lord, as the son of the living God, who has confessed Jesus as Lord of their lives and saviors of their souls? This is what the keys mean. This is what binding and loosing means. Not that we get to be some exclusive community like a country club, but that, that we get to be a hospital for the broken and the hurting that we welcome in anyone who believes in Jesus as the Son of God, who gave his life for the world and came back to life three days later. If we twist this up, we use this passage as an opportunity to exclude based off a number of different reasons. We reverse the timeline of the people of God and are right back where Israel was in the Old Testament, where they started to stack law after law after law upon the law that God had already given them. They stack these laws to exclude the nations and they forget the call that is within the law that God gave them to bring the nations in. God's law welcomed the nations. Yes, it judged the nations for sins, but it provided an opportunity for relationship with him. There's there's a church in the center of the old city of Jerusalem. It's a beautiful church. Uh, I'll, I'll rephrase. It's a church building in the middle of this old city. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And it's where the site of Jesus' crucifixion is said to be, and it's beautiful inside because there's four different religious organizations, church organizations, that have um, decked the space out to honor this site. But for centuries, these four organizations have fought among themselves for control of the building, for the keys to the building. So much so that they're not held by any of the Christian groups right now, but by a Muslim family. Someone outside of the faith has to step in and keep the peace. The keys that Jesus is talking about here are not keys to lock up the doors. They're keys to open them to all who would believe in Jesus' name. That is the hope, the keys and the binding and loosing. It's not a power dynamic. It's a welcome sign. Which brings me to our final support, which is why I can get to this final support. Talked about a Jesus-built church being our only hope because of the timeline of God's people, the portrait of God's son, the blueprint of God's church, but now this is our final support, the hope of God's gospel. A Jesus-built church is our only hope because in the Jesus-built church is the hope of the gospel. Look at verse 20. Jesus turns around and he orders his disciples not to tell anybody that he's the Messiah. That's pretty weird, right? He just talked about this amazing, I will build this church on this rock. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Keys, power, don't tell anybody. Why would Jesus do that? Well, here is why this is the final support 
the hope of God's gospel. Because Jesus recognizes at this moment in time that even though Simon Peter says the right thing, he nor his disciples really understand what that means. Right? We got it in our next section. He has to explain the suffering, death, and resurrection. And yet, even after that, they still don't get it. They don't understand until it actually happens. They don't understand until their eyes see him standing before them having conquered death. They don't understand until Thomas's hands have touched the scars. But when they do, they understand that before them stands the hope of the world. And they gave their lives for that. They gave their lives because they understood that not even death could defeat them. Because their Savior followed them in death all the way through to resurrection. That was their hope. That is why they live out Jesus' promise. Why is the church invincible? Because the gospel, the good news that builds the church that we proclaim is indestructible. That not even death could defeat it. In fact, this is the beauty of God's plan. Death is part of it. Jesus came to earth to die. It wasn't like a blip on the screen. It wasn't a, oh, plan B, got to figure something else out. That was the point. Why is the church invincible? Because the gospel that we proclaim is invincible. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, you might have heard bits and pieces all the way throughout, but I'm going to make it extra clear, not just because if you're not a Christian here, I want you to hear this, but because if you are a Christian here, we all need to hear this. The gospel, the good news that we believe, that brings us into the kingdom and keeps us in the kingdom, that makes the church is the good news that God, the creator king, who made everything you see before you, who made humanity, loved us enough to make sure we could be in relationship with him, despite the fact that we broke relationship with him. Right? Our, our ancestors, our first humans, which we can't just blame because we follow in their steps, they broke all of this. That's why we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, because sin, death, and destruction were introduced on, on chapter three of the Bible. And the good news is that Jesus, God, didn't leave it there. And he didn't just outsource the solution to this plan. He himself came to earth. He became human. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not leverage his rights and privileges as God. Instead, he covered himself in frail human flesh. If you don't feel frail right now, I don't know what will make you feel frail because I feel pretty frail in the middle of a pandemic. That we have to wear masks because of an invisible virus that we can't really see. He took on that kind of human flesh and lived the life we were supposed to live. The life as it was meant to be lived. He didn't sin. He didn't participate in the death and destruction that was introduced. And they killed him for it. And in that death, he took on our sin. He took on the punishment for our sin. You see, the, the reason that death is all over this sermon is because death is the punishment for sin. The gospel is not some paycheck you earn. If you want to put it in those terms, death is the paycheck we earn when we sin. The gospel is a gift that God offers. Say, I've already paid that. Your balance is taken care of. The thing that broke relationship with you, the chasm in between us, I've already bridged it. I'm here. That is the good news of the gospel. 
That is the message of the gospel that brings, I repeat, brings people into relationship with God and keeps people in relationship with God. It's a message that non-Christians and Christians need. And, and it's a message that is not something you generate. It's not something that I made up. It's not something that, that I figured out, that I'm so insightful and so clever with wordplay that, that here it is, I'm presenting something to you. It's something that I and every Christian in this room has received from the Father. And I really believe that. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I really believe that God will reveal himself to you because he did that to me. He did that to every one of us in here through his word in his church. TVC, you want to be an invincible church? You want to be part of this amazing thing that God has done? This project that spans all of time and will for sure succeed in the end? We need to understand that the only hope can be found is in the gospel and that the gospel is found in the church. If we lose that to VC, we're not a church anymore. We're just hanging out. If we lose that, we might as well just file for some kind of nonprofit or be a club because we're not a church anymore. The hope of the gospel is at the center of an invincible church. Now, growing up, I'll, I'll end with this. Growing up, my, my dad and I used to race in a pool. Now, my dad had this story about how he joined the, um, uh, the Olympics team on, in Cuba. Nobody has any records of that, so I have no idea if it's true. But he still beat me every time we were racing in the pool. Because, see, when we were racing, he was very clever, and he said, it's not who gets there the fastest, it's who can do the most laps before they have to come up. I was a child, and my lungs are not as large as an adult man, so I lost every time. But every time I lost, I would keep trying to beat him next time. I would keep trying to, to, to go just a little bit farther. And if you know anything about swimming in water, if you try to go farther, eventually your lungs start to burn. You're lacking oxygen. I would finally explode out of the water and gasp for air. Looking back, what I realized is by that time, I wasn't swimming anymore. I was drowning. And when I talk about this gospel that you were to receive, I'm not trying to give you swimming lessons. I'm not trying to tell you how to better live your life. I'm trying to tell you that Jesus is saving you from drowning. That without Jesus, you are drowning. Trying to fix your life right now is like trying to give you swimming lessons when you're, you're flailing in the water trying to get some air. Jesus needs to save us. And that's why his question in this passage stands as a life jacket for us. Who do you say that I am? The answer to that question will change your life has the potential to transform everything is how Jesus builds his church that will not be overcome by the gates of Hades. The Jesus-built church is our only hope, TVC. Do you really believe that? In just a moment, we're going to take communion. We talked about this. This is how you respond to this question in this moment right now. The Gospel of Matthew actually records Jesus' last meal. This is where we get the first experience of communion. This is why it's called the Lord's table in many traditions. Because in Matthew 26, the Bible says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to him, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. By approaching the Lord's table, even in this unusual pandemic version way, by participating in communion, 
We receive the bread that represents his body. We receive the juice that represents his blood. And we reenact our reception of Jesus, just like the disciples did at that final meal. We renew our commitment to Jesus and to his people. We say that, yes, we believe that his blood poured out for us is for the forgiveness of sins, for our sins, for your sins, for my sins. We celebrate our unity as the body of Christ, agreeing with Jesus that it was poured out for many, not just a few, for many. This is our rhythm as a church of God's people that both communicates the gospel and shapes us even in the moment of participating with that gospel. And this is why we want to celebrate even in the middle of a pandemic. Now, you already hear how unusual these are. There's a plastic part at the top. There's another top on the the juice. We're going to take them together. But there are two openings, just so that you know. I want to make clear that this table is open for all who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. It calls every single Christian to come to it, regardless of skin color, bank account, neighborhood, age. It is a table at which the body of Christ celebrates the gospel of Christ and the upside-down, inside-out, invincible church of Christ. And as we come to it, it's also an opportunity to confess, to confess our sins. In 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds us, whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So I want to give us all a moment to confess. This table is for sinners. Don't get me wrong. You do not need to be perfect to partake of this table. But you do need to be repentant. So Let's prepare our hearts at the moment of silence, confessing to Jesus in prayer. And yes, you can do that. He hears you. Father, we confess this morning that we have not loved you as we should. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have done what we should not have done. We have left undone what we should have done. We are sinners. Apart from you, there is no health in us. We are reminded also that this table is for sinners like us, that you invite us to it. Would you help us to see again that your sacrifice for our sins is more than enough? We praise you. Even though we're sinful, it is through your grace alone that we have peace because of Jesus. Like the song we're about to sing, we confess two wonders at this table, our worth and our unworthiness. May we see your worthiness as more than enough to cover us, that we might celebrate with you now and forever. Show us more and more, Lord, we pray, what it means to be your people together. That we who share the cup would share our lives, that we who eat of the same bread would truly be one, Sergio prayed, Lord, we, we pray for the sick, the sick, the grieving, the hurting among us, those who are struggling with various illnesses, but especially those in our community that are struggling with COVID. We pray that you would strengthen them, that you would strengthen the health care workers that are caring for the health of so many. We pray for those that are here today that don't know you, that as we receive these elements, they would receive you as their Savior. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, fill us with your Holy Spirit. 
Assure us of your love. Remind us of your sacrifice that has once for all been finished. Empower us to serve you in fullness of life. We trust you, Lord. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me again. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Lord, we pray that you would build your kingdom here. We are your church. We need your resurrection power. Amen.